should be one in front of you. And we're part two of the Gospel of Luke. If you're opening up, you'll find Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke is the longest of all the Gospels, which makes it finding it a little bit easier because there's more pages there. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. You're welcome. Okay, Luke 1, verse 5. Let's just read the text. Uh, In the days of Herod, the king of Judah, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. And they both were advanced in years. Now it happened while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division. According to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. An angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and Elizabeth, your wife, will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to their God, the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which were, will be fulfilled in their proper time. The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. And she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. And Father, we do thank you and praise you for this story. Lord, we thank you for your word. Father, we come before it humbly and we ask that your spirit would illuminate its meaning. Father, we pray that you would prepare our hearts uh, to receive it. Father, we lay ourselves before you. We long to hear your voice. We pray, Lord, that through this time, we would grow closer to you. 
We love you, Father. We praise you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, we covered the first four verses of Luke. If you missed that study, there's CDs available out there in the bulletin. If you're an internet-savvy person, you can download the message. But we learned last week in these first four verses that the Gospel of Luke was written by Luke. It doesn't say in Luke that Luke wrote Luke, but there's, I could spend a whole Sunday explaining how we know that Luke wrote Luke, and it's available on the CD, so you can go listen if you have a curious mind. Luke was a Gentile. We know from the text that he never witnessed the life of Jesus. He didn't see the things that happened. And as he writes the first two verses, he tells us that a ton of people, many people, tried to document the events that happened historically with Jesus on the earth. Whether you're a believer or unbeliever, there's little question that Jesus of Nazareth had the greatest impact on human history. History books are written about him. He, He turned the world upside down. And Luke says in verse 3, that in light of all of this, it seemed fitting to write this letter to you. I've, I've heard all of these eyewitness accounts. I've, I've acquaintance of Paul. I've met the early church. I've, I've done my research. And I wrote it to you in chronological order that you may know the exact truth about the things that have happened. And he's writing to this guy, Theophilus, a, a Roman, uh, well, a, a Gentile, somebody in authority, because it says most excellent, And so he's going to begin his story in verse 5. Now, during that time when you were to tell the story, a historical sketch of somebody's life, you started at the beginning. Normally, we think of their beginning in the womb. Jesus, on the other hand, is is an exception because the announcement of John the Baptist is really the beginning of Jesus' earthly life, that this was preparing the way for his life. And I know most of you woke up this morning dying to learn about Malachi. Or how do you say it? Malachi in Italian, I guess, you know. So if you want to turn uh, two or three books to to the left, um, it's the last book in the Old Testament. Malachi was the last prophet to speak to Israel before this story. So Malachi at his death, when he died, no prophet came to declare the word of the Lord to the people of Israel For 400 years. A lot of historically significant events happened during that time. But there was no prophecy that became scripture. No prophet came. It was silence. Until today's story. But in Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. We read the prophet saying this. Behold I'm going to send my messenger. That's John the Baptist. And he will clear the way before me. So here the prophet is quoting from the Lord that that John the Baptist, the messenger, is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So here we see this prophetic telling of the coming of the Messiah. And as the Messiah comes, there's going to be a forerunner being John the Baptist. At the end of Malachi... Chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, we're going to see this looked at in today's story. And it says, these are the words that Malachi ended with. He said, behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will, will not come 
and smite the land with a curse. And so this is the last word we hear from God. For 400 years, the people of Israel make their treks up to Jerusalem for all of the ceremonies. They, they do all of the things that God tells them to do, and they're waiting, waiting and waiting for the Messiah to come. And our story picks up in Luke chapter 5. So we can go back to Luke chapter 1, verse 5. And there we read, Luke, throughout the Gospel of Luke, gives us uh, dates through the Gentile rulers. But this case, he's, in this story, it's going to be a little bit more Hebrew than most of Luke's writing. And he starts out with saying, in the days of Herod, the king of Judah. So right now, we can identify a timeline in history of when this happened. Herod is a family name. The Herod that's being spoken of during this time is Herod the Great. He was voted in by the Roman Senate in B.C. 40. He took his rule in B.C. 37, and he ruled uh, this area of Judah until 4 B.C. This was the Herod the Great who, when the kings came and they said, oh, we saw the star, and he said, oh, the Messiah is coming, that he executed all of the boys under two in that area. We think that that was bad, but he really was a horrible man. But before we get to his personal life, he was, he was a prolific builder. He could raise money and build things that are, would, they blow me away. I am not a builder. I do not do stuff. So, you know, modern building blows me away. Ancient building blows me away. Anybody that can build stuff, it just boggles my mind. If you go to Israel today, all of the ruins that you see, it is from Herod. Every brick that he built with would have his stamp on it. You go to Caesarea, he, this huge port, all of the Rome, all of the, 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 uh, the remains are huge. The temple today, the wall, everything is from him. He was genius. Caesarea, there was no port, and somehow he created, uh, he, I think it was through from Italy, this fine, gritty type stuff. This is from a non-builder talking, and he would sink it into the water and it would turn into concrete and so he created this harbor where there was none so that ships could come and go and provide materials so that it could continue his building process he was of the family line of esau from from jacob and esau from jacob became israel from esau became the edomites so he was an edomite this is the story in genesis i i looked it up and i forgot i think it's in genesis 25 19 around there and we and and the lord tells the mother that there's two nations that are warring in your stomach and they will continue to war and so here's herod building this huge kingdom he literally had his palace that he named the herodian after himself it's this huge mountain that you can still see today and it over it cast a shadow literally on bethlehem the palace i think it was about 40 acres big gigantic in my own word i would call it ginormous i mean it was huge and it cast a shadow so here we see jesus poor jesus coming literally to a poor family in the shadows of this great king herod and he was a brutal man one pastor says this about him the guy was so brilliant and evil unbelievable so much so that he murdered his own wife he murdered two two of his own sons because he was so committed to control he was such a paranoid ruler 
that he thought that they might abdicate his rule, and so he had them murdered. He murdered lots of people. He was so paranoid and controlling that he would send out spies to eavesdrop on the conversations of people in the cities. He outlawed free speech and free assembly. You weren't even allowed to get together and talk about him. If you did, he just killed you. He would dress up in peasant's garb, and he would go out and eavesdrop on citizens. It got to the point where he just murdered so many people and political opponents that there was great public outcry. He was ruler of the Jews. They never accepted him, obviously. But the Roman authority, he would do whatever they wanted. He was, God, he was the ruler. When the public outcry got so bad, if you go to Israel today, you'll see in Caesarea, you'll see at the Herodian, you'll see the remains of these huge swimming pools that he built. When the outcry got so bad that he was murdering everybody, he'd start throwing people, having people over for pool parties. And all of these people started drowning, you know, like, I don't, I'm not killing anybody. They're just drowning in my swimming pools. He was brutal, horrible. We can't act, adequately describe how brutal he was. And so Luke tells us that this is the situation. It was during this time that today's story takes place. And our two characters are going to be introduced to us. We read there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. So we have Zacharias and Elizabeth. These are John the Baptist's parents. We learn that their pedigree is, is of the priestly line. She comes from the tribe of Aaron. He's a priest. Their pedigree was very good before the Lord as far as their priestly lineage. But their character was the same. Just because they came from this good Christian home doesn't make them Christian. But we're going to learn about them. And we're told in verse 6 that they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And so they served the Lord faithfully. They were blameless for the Lord. This doesn't mean that they were sinless. But as far as the requirements that God had placed upon them, they walked faithfully. They were blameless from him. They loved the Lord. But we're going to see that they had a great pain. And really their life, it's easy when there's a great pain to get bitter and angry towards the Lord. And they didn't do this. In verse 7, we see kind of like the, the, oh, they had such great lives, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they both were advanced in years. And so they had no child. This obviously in this story, we're going to see that there was great, great pain. And I love in, it says that they were advanced in years. The literal reading in the Greek, I kind of liked. And it, it says advanced in the days of them. Like each person is only allotted so many days. We don't know how many days we each have to live. And looking, the Lord looking at their lifespan, that they had so many days, they had used up almost all of them. So they're very advanced in the days that they've used. And so we get this picture that they're past childbearing years. So their hope for having a kid, children has gone down. They're, we're told that Elizabeth is barren. And I am extremely sensitive to this pain. When children don't come, there is a pain that is so great to somebody that wants a child. Anna and I briefly experienced this. Our first child we lost through miscarriage, and it was about three years before we could have grace. And during that, that time has forever made me sensitive to those that want children and can't have children. And, and, and even more so during this day, if you didn't have children, it meant that God was punishing you. 
And here we see about this couple with this great burden. He says, you know what? God is good. We love him. We're going to serve him faithfully. They didn't grow bitter. And all through the scripture, when we see the barren woman, these couples, God does amazing things. These are very special people. And so the story where I lost my place, both advanced in years. Okay, verse 8. Now it happened while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the customs of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of incense burning. So he's a priest. We as Gentiles think, oh, priest operating in the temple, that's a big, big deal. It wasn't a big deal. This, of the 100,000 people during this time, there were 18,000 priests. They had the priests divided up into 24 groups, and each group consisted of 750 men. We know that Zacharias, he was from a poor little town. He probably, you know, he's equivalent to a pastor. He probably had a small little country synagogue of 15 to 30 people. Twice a year, you would come to the temple for, for a week. You would do your service in the temple, and then you would leave. Of the 750 men, when they would have the offerings, they would roll the dice, they would draw lots. And if it fell on you, you could go in. You would walk into the temple. We're going to look at this in, in a little bit here. There would be a table there. There would be a, uh, the, the veil blocking the holiest of holies. There would be a little thing there. He'd drop some incense. Psh, It'd go up to symbolize a prayer. You'd say a prayer and you go in. This was the Super Bowl for a priest. If you did it once, you were done for life. Never again. So he'd been serving faithfully. His lot is finally pulled up. He's your average. He's just a normal guy. Ordin- this should encourage us that in Scripture, the people God uses, they're ordinary people with sin, mistakes, and he, they've just watched after the Lord. Now, what I'm going to do is we're going to turn off the lights. Ben's going to hop up and turn off the lights. And I gotta, I'm going to orientate us to Israel and to this, this story. Um, and let's get these off. All right. Okay. So next slide. So here is, we all are familiar, or we should be familiar. This is the Dome of the Rock. This is on the top of Mount Moriah. This is where Abraham held the knife over Isaac. Many significant things happened at Mount Moriah. And this currently, the Dome of the Rock sits right over the place where um, Abraham went to slay Isaac. This wall right here, this is um, the wall that goes around Jerusalem. Just to kind of orient us. Now, next slide. So here is, um, this is a model that I took in the fall when I was in Israel here. Um, That is the Dome of the Rock. It is not the temple. And what you'll see is the Kidron Valley right along here. The Mount of Olives is here. That last picture was taken from the Mount of Olives looking across at it just to kind of give us an orientation. This is that wall that I pointed out. It goes all the way around Jerusalem. And then here is the temple courts. Then right here, there's a little upside down L, kind of looks like a seven. That little section of the wall, that's the Wailing Wall, where we see in, in the news on, on you know, Fox News and there's big events. That's the Wailing Wall. Next slide. This is modern-day Wailing Wall. So that's that section. This was at the Feast of Tabernacles. And the reason they come here, because this is the closest spot to the Holiest of Holies. So if we were just to jump over that fence, if you were standing right here, you could see the gold dome right there. Does that make sense? Then this is just for me. This is my this is my action shot. This is a stage shot on my behalf. The next next slide, folks. 
This is me at the Wayland Wall saying some prayer. I wasn't actually praying. I was just getting a photo. I had prayed. He's like, man, you got to get a picture of that. I'm like, okay, did you take it yet? Did you take it yet? So that's me with my yarmulke on uh, doing some prayers and my flip-flops and shorts. I felt very native there. I, okay, next slide. Okay, so back to business. So here's the temple. This is the second temple. It's referred to as Herod's um, temple, this Herod's second temple. He spent 85 years reconstructing this temple. He started in uh, 20 BC and he went all the way to AD 64-ish, 80 years of constructing this thing. He was a building giant. The irony of this is eight years, depending on where you date it, this thing was destroyed in AD 70. And so when we're looking at this temple, this is the northern wall. This is the wall that we see, the wall of Jerusalem. On this side will be the western wall. This right in this section is the Wailing Wall, modern-day Wailing Wall, looking across to what would be the temple. What I want to point out to you is the people over here might have a hard time, but the next slide will help you. We see a scale down here. That little black rectangle box is a, is a, is a U, U.S. football field, not a, not a soccer field, but a football. So I'm guessing in this thing, I didn't really take the measurements, but there could be about 20 football fields covering this whole thing. It is huge, huge. And so what we're going to do is, and this is the this is the temple, the holy center of it. The outside is a Gentile courtyard. We're going to zoom up into this picture. Next slide. So here we get to this, the 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 holy place. This up on the top right corner. This is the the, the holy place, and this is an American football field. So I'm guessing it to be about four football fields big, maybe más o menos. Um, but here's the women's courtyard. Here's the priest's courtyard. These are the slaughtering tables. This is the altar where they were offered. Um, looking inside of the temple, this would be the door in. Here you have the incense. My shaky hand, a little dot. It's getting too narrow. Um, that's the uh, altar of incense, the showbread table, the lampstand, and then this number three, that cloth. That was the veil that was torn in two when Jesus went on the cross. And the back area, number two, this was where the presence of the Lord dwelled. And then number one, I like it. Every church has to have a storage room. So that's kind of the priest storage room, you know, like that's the, the priestly area for storage. So what we're going to do on the next slide, I'm going to keep it up here for the story. We're going to zoom into this section. Okay. So next slide, please. Okay. So that makes sense to everybody. So for today's story, I'm going to kind of do a little bit in the dark and then we'll turn the lights on and we'll, we'll move on. But for the story, I want us to be able to, to visualize today's story. So this is behind here. Number two, the holiest of holies. Um, our guy Zacchaeus, or Zacharias, not Zacchaeus, all the priests are out here praying. He's going to enter in. His job is to go in there on that table, looking at the veil. The presence of the Lord is right there to light his incense, say his little prayer, and come out. It's not supposed to take very long. So this is our picture, and we're going to continue in verse 11. So they drew their lot Zach, Zacharias is Super Bowl. He gets to go, and he's, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. He's going in there, says his prayer, praying for his nation, I believe, still praying about his, the, the child. Whether he was actually praying at that point or it had been a prayer that he'd prayed this whole time coming here. And as he does this, we read in verse 11, and an angel of the Lord. This is the angel Gabriel. There's two angels mentioned by name in the scriptures, Gabriel and Michael. So here Gabriel appears. He's standing at a table. He puts his little behind the veil to the right. This angel shows up. 
I mean, he's in right as close as you can get to the presence of God during that time. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacchaeus was troubled. Yeah, well, uh oh. When he saw the angel and fear gripped him. Of course it did. We all would be terrified. When you come close to deity as a finite, infinite man, this is, this is an angel. Oh no. Did I do it wrong? <laughs> like, I don't, did I make a mistake? Silence from God since Malachi, 400 years before. Fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. Remember, he's advanced in years. He's old. His wife is barren. He knows his prayer. You know, we've all we've all heard that when you're praying, there's three answers, right? Yes, no, and maybe. I'm sure Zacharias heard it too. Now, at the end of his life, that maybe gets turned to a yes. He's like, "Are you? This is. I don't know what he's thinking. We're going to see what he's thinking." Um, at this point, we can turn on the lights. I think you guys got the picture, and we're going to kind of navigate a little bit through the text here. So we're going to pop them all on. We can go to the scripture slide. Very good. Let your eyes adjust here. <clears throat> so he's fearful. Verse 13, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. There are no Johns in, in, in their family line at the end of this story, which we're not going to get to today, when... When Elizabeth goes to name him, everybody looks at her and goes, Elizabeth, is there something you're not sharing with us? Why would you choose that name? And they look at, David pointed out to me, Dave pointed out to me that when we get there, he, he can't speak. His ears are so fine, but they're like motioning to him, trying to get his attention. Like, what's up with her wanting to name John? And he's like, get me a tablet. And he writes out, his name is John. So he's going to be called John. Verse 14, you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and he will drink no wine or liquor. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. So right away we learn a couple of things. I, the way I'm going to address them is not necessarily in the way that they come up. First, which I'm going to come back to. It says he will be great in, in the sight of the Lord. In Matthew 11, verse 11, which we're going to go to in a second, Jesus talking to the disciples, he says, amongst men that have been born, there is none greater than John the Baptist. And he segues with that and says, if you want to be great, greater than him in the kingdom of God, humble yourselves and be a servant on this earth. It's the flipped up pyramid scheme. The way up is down. But the angel says he will drink no wine or liquor. And so what's going to happen to John the Baptist is he's going to take a Nazarite vow. He's having a Nazarite vow placed upon him. The Nazarite vow is found in Numbers chapter 6. We're not going to go there. You were to do two things or you weren't to do two things and you were to do one thing. You were not to drink any alcohol, nothing from the, the grapevine. You were not to touch any dead anything. And you were to grow your hair out like a hippie. You were to have long hair. 
And the reason that you did this was to set yourself apart for the Lord's service. And you could do it temporarily. I believe that Paul took a Nazarite vow of an axe and he shaves his head like he was done with his vow. You did it to consecrate yourself to the Lord, to be set apart, to be holy for his purposes. But John the Baptist, to his death, he was a Nazarite. We see him coming out. He was a, he was a weirdo. He shows up when he comes on scene. I just picture this guy with like dreadlocks, camel's hairs, you know, like he's got like sackcloth on him. He's standing in the river, eating crickets and honey, not drinking, calling people out for their sin. I mean, just boldly saying, you're in sin repent for the kingdom of God is near be baptized. He even calls out Herod the Great. Herod the Great, who we talked about how horrible, he calls him out for having this uh, unholy relationship with a family member. And the scriptures kind of says that Herod was a little bit intrigued by him. He found it interesting. But ultimately he had him killed. He was going to be a little bit odd. Set apart for the Lord. Sometimes God makes us a little bit odd. It's okay. Because God's ways are not man's ways. And so when you start living for the Lord, you're going to look different. But I want to touch base very briefly. You know, dealing with Christians, it's, it's interesting sometimes. We, I love us. I love us. Our, our intentions are good most of the time. But because the scriptures put tension on us, we tend to fall on one extreme or the other. And so we look here and we say, drink no wine or no liquor. And so we say, scriptures say you should not drink alcohol, period, if you're a Christian. I kind of side in that camp. That's kind of my flesh. Like if I'm going to just go there. And so then, then we run into problems. Like the Lord's Supper, his first miracle, turning water into wine. Then we say, man... But we can't drink alcohol because it's unholy, but the Messiah is making wine and he's communing. So then we say, no, he just made grape juice. And we start changing the scriptures to, to kind of fit our position. And the problem is we have to let the scriptures speak for itself. Now, on the other side, we say, no, there's great freedom, antinomianism, which means that's a big word. It means there's no law. There's freedom in Christ. We can get drunk, go crazy, do whatever we want. So on this, I just want to say Ephesians 5.18 says, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. And I think that the issue is control, the, the irreducible minimum. If we just take this issue down to its bottom three things, there are three things I can clearly say about alcohol in the scriptures. One, under no circumstances a Christian to get drunk. Two, under no circumstance is a Christian in their freedom to cause somebody else to drunkenness. Number three, you're not to break the law. And so within that, there's freedom. Now, I don't drink. I haven't drank in I don't know how long. It's probably been 10 years. But I, like, I do not not drink because of biblical reasons. I don't not drink. I don't drink. Wait, I'm getting too many negatives in there. I don't drink because I was an idiot. I, I don't drink. Because I wasn't given the gift of moderation. I can't do it. I can't. If we're talking about drinking, it's going to be a competition. 
Anything worth doing is worth overdoing. That's another thing I've quoted. My, there's a lot of things. And so I think I've been a Christian for a long time. I like really enjoy alcohol. Well, I do. So, you know, that's why I don't drink. But I think, well, I can have a glass of wine. But the, I know it's inside of me. And I say, no, what? That's a fire I don't want to play with. And I'm reminded of the last time we were at Spain. They do communion with wine. And I remember doing that little communion juice going, oh, that Spain wine is good. This was tasty. I'm like, I can only do one thing of communion. Like, I'm not going to. But I see what's in me. Now, some people have the ability to not get drunk. That's great. But there's tension there. But on this, the sight of the Lord, he'll be great, which is going to unpack. I want us to turn over to Matthew chapter 11. In Matthew chapter 11, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Jesus, this whole thing kind of ties together. It's interesting. In verse 11, chapter, Matthew 11, chapter, verse, Matthew 11, verse 11. Jesus, as he's talking to his disciples, he says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. When I look at my cousin John, the guy with the dreadlocks, eating crickets, calling people, he was a freak by their, like, can you imagine, this is like, go to our nearest body of water and dressed in a potato bag cloth, grow your hair out, eat crickets and honey, and just start challenging people's sins. God wants you to repent. God wants you to repent. The kingdom, that would go over a little weird in our culture, to say the least. And Jesus says, there is no greater man than him. Yet one who is least, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace who call out to other children and say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. So he says, Micah, he doesn't eat or drink. They say he's demon. They say he's weird. He's not religious enough for him. Now, the next verse is really the, the position of holding that the wine was really grape juice. They really have a hard time with this one. Then Jesus, after talking about John, he says to himself, he says, the son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sitters. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. So he says, to John, they say he's got a demon because he doesn't drink. He's a, to- it, what's that big word? A t- it's what I am, a teetotaler or whatever. Is that right? Teetotaler? Well, you don't drink. You don't believe in it. He ate crickets. He called people out for their sin. He's got a demon. And so then Jesus has a glass of wine, was a nice guy. Was, I think Jesus was funny. If you read some of the stuff, he had a great sense of humor. He goes to tax collectors, hangs out with prostitutes. He has a glass of wine. His first miracle was at a wedding when they ran out of wine. And he says, then they say about me that I'm a drunkard and I'm a sinner, like all of this stuff. And religious people can be brutal. 
But back to Luke. He tells them he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And here Jesus says there is no man that's been as great as John the Baptist. And he says, and he will not drink wine or liquor for he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet he is in his mother's womb. And so before he's even conceived, he's made a Nazarite for his life. And he's told from his womb, he will have the spirit upon him. In the Old Testament, the spirit would come and go as he pleased. He would come upon men that were godly and he would lead them. So David, as he was caught in his great sin in Psalm Psalm 51, says, Lord, don't take your spirit from me, that the spirit could be taken away. Well, after Pentecost, after now we, according to Ephesians chapter one, verse 13, that when we believe in Christ, the spirit comes upon us. We're filled with the spirit. We're baptized in the spirit for till the day of redemption. We don't lose the spirit. We cannot have be filled with the spirit as much. But the point I want to mark here is the scriptures, when they talk about children in the womb, it's the same word whether it's a five-year-old child jumping on Jesus' lap or if it's in the womb. It's a child. It's a child. And this church, the denomination we're associated with, are unashamedly, well, if you can say the word correctly, we're not ashamed of being pro-life. It's not a political issue. So many people will turn this into partisan. This is children are being executed in the womb. And we have an obligation to stand for them. And this month, we're going to talk a lot about the sanctity of human life. We see that John the Baptist from the mother's womb was set apart. Verse 16, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him, that's Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of their fathers back to children and the disobedient attitude of of the righteous, to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So here the angel is quoting to Zacharias. In the temple, in front of the veil there, he quotes the last thing that's documented from the prophets. He says, your son is going to be a forerunner. He's going to turn the hearts of the sons back to their fathers. Families are going to be restored. The nation of Israel is going to repent and turn to the Lord. And then the Messiah is going to come. Whoa. Can you imagine Zacharias standing there with the angel? He's an old man by his own words. He's got some questions. He's not so sure about the promises that were just made. And Zacharias in verse 18 says, Zacharias said to the angel, how will I know this for certain? There's doubt. And I love the response. I wish I could see Gabriel. Gabriel looks at him and he answers and he said to him, I am Gabriel. Like, did he look at his wings? Like, I don't know. Like, did he say, hey, dude, I'm an angel. I'm talking to you in the temple The holiest of holies is right here. I stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Who do you think you are? I said, God said this message, it will come. And I love his consequence. 
And behold, verse 20, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. He said, you know what? You're not going to be able to talk about this for like 10 months. Maybe, maybe 12, like how we don't know the time that, that she conceived and pregnancy is really like 10 months, you know, there's this, and he can't talk. He's good. Everybody's outside the temple going, what is taking him so long in there? Zacharias, he does this all the time. All he's supposed to do is say a prayer, come out. We're out here praying. We're doing our stuff and he's taking his time. He has this great experience and he's, the greatest game of charades. I wish I could have seen this. So verse 21, the people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to him. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and kept and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. So I don't know what he's doing if he's doing like angel signs and a vision. He got the, and he's like, my wife. Like, they're going, <laughs> something happened in there, but I, I don't know. And he obviously, get, I mean, he gives up. They don't know what's going on. When the days, verse 23, when the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. And after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. And she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. So they go home. She gets pregnant. She's wanted to have a baby for a long time. So she's going to put herself on bed rest for five months. Like, I don't want to do anything. Some have said, some have suggested that two of her prayers were answered. One, that she could have a child. The second is that her husband couldn't speak for 10 months. Now, I don't know. I don't know that I agree with that. But it's funny. <laughs> and, she, you know, she just responds with, like, Thank you, Lord. Like, thank you. And as I look at this story and I consider, like, what are the implications to us? Is God's plan has been in the works for a long time. You go to Genesis chapter 3 and you see right immediately following the fall, he says, as he curses Satan, he says, through Abraham's seed, you're going, to be, you're going to be done. You're toast. And then we see all of the prophetic events leading up to the Messiah. And then from Malachi, John the Baptist is born miraculously. He paves the way. The Messiah comes. He does all of this. And why does he lives a perfect life for 33 years? He ultimately is tried, condemned, executed, conquers the grave. Why did he do all of this? For you, for me that we could have a relationship with him, that our sins would be forgiven. This is a great thing. It should bring us great joy that this is the beginning story, that all of this was done in in the midst of so many people, that Jesus came. He loves us. He wants us to take our sins to him. He wants us to be cleansed. He wants us to walk with him. He wants us to enjoy eternal life today. And when I look at Elizabeth and I look at Zachary, they faithfully walked with the Lord. They're faithfully serving. It didn't seem like anything big or extravagant was about to happen. 
but they were faithful. And as you serve the Lord, it's amazing what he does. As you say, I laugh that I'm a pastor today. It started 10 years ago. And all I said is I walked to the pastor and said, dude, I'm an active duty Navy SEAL. I'm on the road 260 days out of the year. Is there anything I can do? to serve because i feel like i'm supposed to serve but but i was given this like excuse like he would i was hoping that the pastor would say oh don't worry about it man just you know just yeah, do your navy seal thing and whatever he said whenever you're here you can shake people's hand and you can be an usher so i did that and then look at me now i mean it's i just kept like i started servants what i could do then god opened another door like a, i mean going jogging and i feel like god saying start a bible study in a retirement home how does we do that? And it's just as you say, Lord, here I am, use me. He begins to direct you. And the story unfolds in Elizabeth's life, in, in Zacharias' life, just because they made themselves available to the Lord. And I love that worship leads to service and just walk, not to earn our salvation, just to give him thanks and glory. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. Lord, I thank you that throughout the scriptures, You use just regular old people. You use us in our imperfections. We thank you, Lord, that the story in Scripture is not about us, but it's about you. Father, we thank you for this, just this miraculous story. Lord, we thank you for the Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth and their faithfulness to you. Father, we're encouraged to to follow after them, Lord, that we would be obedient to you. Father, we pray that as we uh, turn to you, Lord, as we give you our lives, Father, we pray that you would just grow us in our faith, our knowledge of you. Father, we pray that you would help our hearts just to grow more and more in love with you. Father, it's not about religion. It's about relationship. And, Father, we are just so enamored by you. Father, take our lives. Use us. We love you. We praise you. And we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen. Please stand as you're able. Hallelujah.